For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Our Citizenship. Mr. Steele. Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see everybody. Good to see some visitors here today. I won't point them out, but they're sitting over there. So, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but uh, it's the B British invasion today. Which, you know, is, is probably the, the best thing to help cheer you up, because, you know, it could be worse. You could be ruled by the British crown again, right? Or maybe that would be better. There actually might be a little less gold involved in being ruled by the British crown than Donald Trump. I'm, I'm dreading to see what the White House looks like after four years of, uh, you know, the gilding and whether, whatever else may happen. But, uh, yeah, so somebody forgot to warn you, there's no Paul Revere, that the British are coming today. But it is, uh, it, it's an interesting time to live, isn't it? That uh, Chinese blessing, curse, whatever that may be. We have had an incredibly interesting, crazy, drama-filled election cycle for the past 18 years, or it feels like the past 18 years. <laughs> or is it officially two years? You get to govern and then it starts again. Well, that'll be fun. But it, it has been, uh, it's been a challenge. It's been a challenge in lots of different ways. But even with all those challenges, when you think about it, some of the fundamental things that happen, uh, I, I noticed uh, President Obama was referring to this the other day, about the peaceful transfer of power. I mean, unless you live in California or Oregon or Colorado or, but even still, even with those protests, we are living in a country where we still have a peaceful transfer of power. There are not really states seceding for the, from the Union, in spite of what you see on Facebook. And nobody's died. There's been no war. There's been no conflict, no death, and, and, and no destruction. We're in the process of transferring from one ideology to another. We're really not sure what that ideology is, but, you know, we'll figure it out. And, and we're transferring from one leader to another. And I still think that we're blessed by having that in our, in our country, in our government. And it's a tremendous blessing that we still have. And it's something that we take for granted. We don't even give it a second thought. And maybe if we didn't take it for granted, we'd do more with it, right? We'd be, we would be able, as a people, to do much more than what we've done. I recently read a couple of articles, probably about three different articles, and their topic was about how politics has become a religion. Would you agree with that statement? The politics has become a religion. And uh, there are two main denominations in this religion, aren't there? There's the, you know, there's the conservative and the liberal, or the, the Republican and the, and the Democrat. And, and then there's a few kind of, uh, 
what shall we say, you know, just break off groups. Maybe they're the COGs of this uh, environment. The little small independents or, um, oh, what's the other one? Uh, the Libertarian uh, Party. So there are denominations in this politic that is religion. And they have, um, well, they have important attributes that make them look like a religion. You know, the people that, that have, have followed into this, it is the most central thing in their life, politics. Now, I am not criticizing activism. I'm not saying that we shouldn't engage in the political process. So please, you know, I'm not, I'm not commenting on that either way. But we do see there's a very extreme element in every political sphere, in every side of the political landscape that has taken this and become a religion with tenets. You know, they have doctrines. They, they have part, they're the party manifestos, if you will. They're um, political position papers on social and economic issues. And, and they hold those tenets very seriously. Very seriously. They are life and death to some of these folks. But they're not. They're not life and death. Their doctrines, these manifestos and philosophies are written and explained by their bishops, right? Otherwise known as party leaders and their evangelists who are the candidates. Because, you know, that's what we do in our election process. We're evangelizing, aren't we? We're, we're, we're trying to persuade the electorate to come over to our position so that we can have power and so that we can right all the wrongs in the world. And and so that our way will win. They have their conventions or their caucuses and have become religious revivals in many ways. This huge, it's almost a worship service in there. Worshiping the state, worshiping the process of politics. And it, it, again, I'm not discriminating against being involved in politics for the betterment of your community. But there is this extreme element within our country. They glorify the power of the state and the principles of their own ideology. And their way is the only way and the only truth. And anything else, well, as we can see, the other side is evil wicked, corrupt, whatever it may be, with all the, the attributes that are thrown at them. These are the political believers. The politics of the country is their religion. That is a problem. That's a problem all of its own. It's a serious problem. It misdirects people from what's important in life. There are many things that are important about how we're governed and how we conduct our, our civic lives. But it isn't the level of a faith and a religion. So that is dangerous of itself. But what is more dangerous, in my opinion, is the mixing of politics with religion. And there are those that do that to the extreme. 
where you no longer see the dividing lines between the practice of their Christian faith and their politics. It's one and the same. Now, I'm not talking about the separation of church and state. That is a whole other argument. I'm talking about our personal conduct and our worldview, that the lines are getting blurred in, in many different political groups that are tied to large national church organizations or groups of organizations. This is dangerous. It is very dangerous. It's dangerous for the faith of those involved. It's dangerous for the church itself and, of course, for the country itself because it can cause some fractures and it can, in the long term, create the kind of situations that will not see a peaceful transfer of power anymore. These are very serious problems. But I understand it's easy for us to do this, to blur these lines, to accept a compromise of faith because of political expediency. In so many ways, we do that at the ballot box. And I won't get into the, the details, but every single one of us knows that we have to make a judgment about a candidate, about the principles they stand up for, and the things that they will support versus the things that the other guy will do. And mixing our religion and our faith in there is very dangerous. As I said again, I want to reiterate this. I am not saying that we shouldn't vote or engage in political processes. What I am saying is that we as Christians, first and foremost, are called to be citizens of a new kingdom, of another country. Not this one. Our primary citizenship is of a new country, a new kingdom that will come to this earth. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul, just joining into his treatise, we say, he says, Brethren, join in following my example. And note that those who also walk, for, as you, have, for, for you have us for a pattern, for many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now I tell you in weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And that's important for us to consider about our role as a citizen, setting our mind on earthly things. And oftentimes, we will certainly think of this scripture as a moral principle, as something that should govern, we should be careful about how we are conducting ourselves with our own individual choices and whether those lead to sin or not. But in the context of what Paul's talking about here, it's interesting. He ties it to citizenship. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven. It is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We get our citizenship from heaven. We're no longer just citizens of man's world. We have been made into something new, godly citizens. 
It's a simple statement. We've heard it many times before. Oh, yeah, 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 we're citizens of, of heaven. And at some point in the future, in the kingdom of God, we'll be able to, to conduct ourselves that way. Is that what Paul's talking about? Was he just being po poetic? Or was he really trying to get the church at Philippi to think about something? Because citizenship carries some very important powers, important privileges. I remember when I was naturalized um, as a citizen of the United States, there was a large group um, being uh, naturalized at the, at the same time. And I bristled at what the judge said. And, and this judge was clearly loved doing this. He himself had his family tree and he was telling us about how his family came from, I think, Ireland. And, and he was proud of the fact, it was probably one of the best things he could do as a judge because most of the time he's sending people, you know, to jail. And so here he's actually presiding over this ceremony. He, he clearly loved it. Um, but I bristled at this statement at the time because I, I was conflicted. I'm, I'm uh, patriotic from the country of my birth. Um, but it was, a, it, was a, it was something I had to resolve. And so I resolved that in my mind. And, and then he said this. He said um, that I was no longer a subject. I'm, I'm okay with being a subject of the queen. I, I, I'm proud of the queen. She's done a fantastic job. Uh, there's a love there, a patriotic love for, for one's monarch. You guys don't understand that. But <laughs> Mark doesn't really understand it either because he's Irish. and That's a whole other story. But there is. And certainly, you know, having that love for one's monarch in a constitutional democracy that, that she can't really do anything to you, it's pretty easy to love her at that point. But I was struggling with that at the time. But the more I thought about it, I've learned to understand what he meant. Because a subject is subject to the will and the whim of the power that's over them. So the monarch or the government, the dictator, the Fuhrer, the Caesar, whatever it may be, when you are subject to that governing authority, you are not a citizen. And there's a big difference. So I've learned to appreciate what he was saying, that I am not a subject in that historical sense, having no part to play in the running of, of a country or the community in which I live. A citizen does. A citizen, in the fullest meaning of the word, is one who is empowered with, as the writers of the Declaration of Independence said, a citizen is one who is empowered with inalienable rights. That's what a citizen has over that of a subject. In many ways, and we're going to go through this a little bit, but you'll, you'll see that in many ways a citizen is a mini-sovereign. A citizen is sovereign. 
because they have powers that are from, at least in our, in our political system, identified from their creator, from God. And what powers do monarchs have? Duet mandrat, God and my right, the right coming from God. Well, of course, as citizens, if our powers, our rights come from God, then we are also these many sovereigns in some ways. When Paul uses this word, he was being deliberate, specific. Sorry, my son is hacking up along back there. He was using a word very deliberately. He understood the meaning, and the people that he was writing to understood the meaning. Remember, not everyone who lived in the Roman Empire was a citizen, right? Not everybody was a citizen. Most were not citizens. Most were subjects living alongside citizens in the same communities. In their day, at different times, and some of these changed with uh, different administrations, Roman citizenship carried various different rights. Uh, one of them, you'll recognize the word, is us suffragorium, the right to vote, suffrage. Us honorium, the right to stand for civil or public office. Uh, there was the right to make legal contracts to hold property as a Roman citizen. Are these sounding familiar? The right to have a lawful marriage with, Roman, uh, with a Roman citizen and for the children of any such marriage to be counted as Roman citizens. The right to preserve one's level of citizenship upon relocation to another polis or another city, another, another area. The right of immunity from some taxes and other legal obligations, especially local rules and regulations because you're a, city, a citizen of Rome, right? Not of the city that you happen to be living in. The right to have a legal trial and mount a defense. The right to appeal from the decisions of magistrates and to appeal the lower court decisions. Pretty interesting. Sounds a lot like the rights that we have, isn't it? Well, of course, it's gonna, be clear, isn't it, to anybody that looks into this, that this was the template for Western civil rights and the, the government structures that we have now. And of course, things have, have changed along the way. For example, we don't have the right to get out of paying certain taxes. We, um, we can, well, I won't go there with the, uh, the marriage right. So we've, we've obviously modified things sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But you can see the kinds of rights that citizens had in Rome are very similar to the rights that we have today. And we take these things for granted. We mostly don't pay them any mind, you know, unless we hit somebody with our car and we're pulled into court and then we have to call somebody like Trevor to bail us out. 
Until we use the legal system, we probably don't really think about it much. But there are rights that we have as citizens to protect ourselves, just as they did. But you know, there's a class of people, interestingly enough, that live amongst us that don't have these rights because they are not citizens. We call them illegal aliens, uh, and we don't give them the same rights that we do as a citizen. Now, there are some rights that we give, but the exercise of those rights carries a tremendous amount of risk, isn't it? Because if they needed some legal help, they needed some relief from somebody, well, they could get deported if they make their case known to the courts. So effectively, they don't really have those rights. Not very much, anyway. They can't vote. They can't sue anyone. They can't use the legal system to protect themselves. They are not citizens. And therefore, as citizens, without the protection of the law, they're probably more at risk from abuse, more at risk from labor violations, and, and all kinds of other things, because they cannot use the power of that citizenship. As I said, not everybody in Rome was a citizen. And it's pretty similar for what we have today. A Roman citizen could not be tortured or whipped, and, and he could also have his sentence of death commuted to voluntary exile. And last, he was found guilty of treason. If accused of treason, a Roman citizen had the right to be tried in Rome, and even if sentenced to death, no Roman citizen could be sentenced to die on the cross. And as we know from Paul's own life, he had the right to appeal to Caesar, one of the biggest rights that a Roman citizen had. So very carefully, Paul uses this word citizen when writing to the people and a church that would have had Roman citizens in their congregation and non-citizens in their congregation, those that wished they had those rights. In Christ Jesus, Paul is saying you are now the same. You are citizens but not citizens of this world, not citizens of the Roman system that you're living under. You are citizens of the new age to come, the new kingdom of God. And with that citizenship comes powers and responsibilities. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. But sometimes people misread this passage and say, I'm going to get my citizenship at some point. It's in heaven. So we have lots of people that believe they go to heaven to receive their citizenship. Or maybe we might be thinking that, well, we receive it when Jesus brings it. It's there waiting for him to bring it to us. No. In heaven is the documentation that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. There's a stamp on it. In Jesus' own blood, 
that you are a citizen of that new country, that new kingdom, his kingdom that is coming on the earth. And it's not in the future. It's now. We are citizens now. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, Paul uses the same concept again. He says, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're not slaves, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are now citizens of the kingdom. Now. Right now. Not subjects in that old medieval sense. Not even to a nice queen like Elizabeth. We are citizens of that new country. Citizens in the Roman sense of the word. We are empowered. We have rights, privileges, and, as I keep saying, responsibilities. We are responsible with those rights. You know, I was thinking about the riots that have gone on, and I know they're relatively small as, as far as riots go. But part of the citizenry, or let me, let me back up, part of the reason why we have peaceful transfers of power is that the citizenry doesn't riot. And I don't think these folks quite understand that. I think they're opening a door that might not get closed because the next time the other party gets in, what's stopping a whole bunch of young people from looting and pillaging and rioting and starting a method and a, a history, a pattern of rioting? We have responsibilities as citizens. But let's back up, because what are our rights? Have you ever thought about that? Well, if we're a citizen of the kingdom of God, what are your rights? What are your rights? Well, there's lots of them, and we don't have time to go into all of them, but I've, I've just picked out some today that are simple. But I would really want us to, to remember how we are citizens and what our rights are as citizens, and therefore maybe help us engage the, in the world a little differently. Firstly, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are free. I've put that first. We are free. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We are free. When a citizen is taken from being a subject to being a citizen, they're now made free from all the rules and the laws and the structure that control that individual's life. We are made free. Free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in, all, in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according 
to the Spirit. We are now free. We're free from the law of sin and death. Christ Jesus has taken away our sin. He has paid for those transgressions. He's granted us liberty through his own blood. We don't have to walk around being burdened by the weight of bondage, of evil. All of that has been taken away. We have been granted freedom. Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And you know, when we look at that scripture, we, we, we naturally think of our sins, our own personal conduct again. But we also need to think about it in, in relation to how we live in the world, how we live in our community. Would a Roman, once granted citizenship, take again the burdens of being a subject? Who would do that? Who would do that? A Roman would not cast off their citizenship. That free man or woman would not want to lose those privileges. So we must walk carefully and not entangle ourselves again in sin and oppression and in bondage of a personal kind and a political kind. We need to be careful. This can be of a personal nature. But when we recognize that we can walk in this freedom of Christ as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then we can set aside the political results that we don't like. We can be free from the worry and the fear of that because We've read the back of the book, right? The kingdom of God is coming to this earth. This government and all other governments will pass away. And so if we remember to keep it in that context, then we're not in bondage. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? This person is in the White House. I didn't vote for this person. I'm just going to let you know that. I'm not worried about it. I'm free. I'm a citizen of the king, of the kingdom of God. So, let's not get bondaged in again. Let's not get shackled in again with the way the world does politics and the way the world does citizenship. I may have mentioned this uh, many times before, but, you know, it's, it's hard for us in many ways. We've been born into freedom, right? If we've been born in this country or any of the other free countries of the world, it's hard for us to imagine not being born into freedom. And, and I'm glad for that. But there are many people that are not born into freedom. I remember, and I may have told you this story before, but back at my naturalization ceremony, there was a, a gentleman that was standing behind me. And when we were taking the oath, where I don't know how many people there were, but there was a lot of us. So the judge was reading the oath, and we all had our hand up. And the judge is reading the oath. And then I suddenly become aware of sobbing behind me. Just sobbing. And when a grown man is sobbing, you take notice. <laughs> and 
I kind of half turned around and I could, I could see him and he didn't care. He was just sobbing because that moment he was made free. And he knew what it was like to be a subject and now be free. I always remember that. I always take that with me as a reminder to me and, and hopefully to you too of how we should walk in this freedom that we have in Christ. Would he go back to that bondage again? No. You couldn't pay him to go back to that bondage. I really wish I had turned around and gave him a big hug, but I was a lot more British back then. <laughs> and as Mark will attest, that's not the sort of thing we do. But I wish I had. But nonetheless, I still remember that. We are free. Free from the law of sin and death. Free from the worries and the struggles of this age. Let it happen. It'll happen. Whatever it will be. God is in control. Another right as a citizen of the kingdom of God is eternal life. Eternal life. And we're like, well... Sure, that's no surprise here, Matt. Tell us something new. Eternal life. But in the context of what Paul was saying, in the context of the church at Philippi, it meant something probably more powerful. If you think about it, most of our rights that we have as citizens of this country and, and other free countries are designed for life. Right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we have various rights. The legal system is designed so somebody can't just take our stuff and kill us because we wronged them. There's a legal system, there's laws to protect us so that we can go in front of the judge and we can argue that we didn't do that crime. And it, it is there to protect, to maintain our life. But that's all it can do. It can only maintain our life. It cannot extend our life. For all of his power, going back to Rome now, and Caesar, for all of his power, he could do nothing about death. So all the power that Caesar had in the Roman Empire and the power to grant citizenship to these individuals, he could do nothing about death. Everyone was still going to die. At the crucifixion of Jesus, the Roman soldier that's standing next to him, and I heard this, this quote from somebody else, so it's, it's not mine. The Roman soldier standing next to him has some coins in his pocket or his purse. And on it is a, an image of Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. And around the edge was written, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Son of God. And the Roman soldiers carrying some of those coins, possibly, as he's standing there watching the real son of God die to give us life eternal. It's interesting when you think about that. The real Son of God 
can grant eternal life. Caesar couldn't grant any Roman eternal life. Our country, our citizenship, our documents that are the foundation of our country, our president, our senators, our congressmen, none of them can grant eternal life. There is one Son of God, and there is one God the Father, and they are not Caesar and Caesar Augustus. They're not any of our political leaders. Only Jesus could grant us that. In Romans 8, verse 9, it says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And Paul is writing to the Romans, who are very familiar with the concept of the Son of God. And he's writing to tell them Jesus is the real Son of God. And then by Jesus' own words in John chapter 10 and verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and my Father are one. I don't often read that passage, but no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We cannot have these rights taken away. It cannot happen. Christ Jesus in us, if we walk by the Spirit of Christ, no one can take that away. No political party, no president, no Caesar. It cannot be taken from us. Again, flying in the face of the power of Caesar and Rome, and it's limited poor citizenship. Just like the citizenship of the United States, it's limited. It's not good. It's pretty weak in comparison to the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven with eternal life, with true freedom. God the Father and Jesus Christ are not Augustus or Tiberius or Trump or Hillary or any of those. Our citizenship is in heaven. The last one I was going to mention today is the right to appeal to the supreme power. One of our rights as citizens is that we can appeal to the supreme power. In Acts chapter 25, we break into that courtroom scene which will start Paul on his journey to Rome. And he's before Governor uh, Festus, as it says. And when he, verse 6, Festus had remained among them for more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, 
the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law or the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all, he said. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, asked Paul and said, are you willing to go down to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? And Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For, I am an, for if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, then no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, I'm sure there was a stirring in the room when he said that. What? Does he really want to do this? Nuclear option. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. It was his right. No one could stop it. A Roman citizen could appeal to Caesar. So, to Caesar he went. Paul had not committed any crime for which he should be imprisoned. He was beaten, denied his rights as a citizen of Rome, at least initially on a few, few occasions. And he rightly had the privilege to appeal to Caesar. But to what end? To what end? Well, in the immediate situation, he was in danger. I'm, I'm not too sure he would have survived the trip back to Jerusalem. Or maybe he was let go in Jerusalem and would have been murdered in the city before he could get out. So there was an immediate danger situation, potentially. But more than that, he wanted to have his day in court, didn't he? He wanted to have his day in court, to be heard by the most powerful man in the world. And he used the rights as a citizen to advance the citizenship of the kingdom. He used the rights of a, as a citizen of Rome to advance the citizenship of the kingdom of God. And that is an important lesson for us to learn and remember. But in all of that activity, he didn't neglect what was right and true. He didn't compromise with his faith. He didn't give up on his citizenship. He was ex exercising his rights. So, so we can do the same. We can use our citizenship in this country as a tool for the will of God to advance the kingdom of God. Because there is nothing else greater than that. And that's what our citizenship is now for. But then also we individually can appear, appeal to the most powerful being in the world. Not a man, but Jesus Christ and the God the Father. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, it says, These things I have written to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have life eternal, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we will have the petitions that we have asked of him. He hears us. And if we ask according to his will, which I think is probably sim simpler than we think. We've got to figure out a mystery of God's will. Maybe not. It's probably easier than that. Are we asking for something that goes against his law? Are we asking for something that goes against the best judgment and the guidance of the spirit that we have in us? Are we asking for something that goes against his will for us, for mankind? If not, we can ask. And in faith, we know we have the right with him for our petition to be heard. And sometimes we, we might get a little uncomfortable to say, well, we've got the right. He gave us the right. He has given us this citizenship. And he expects us to exercise our rights. He wants us to reach out to him, to make our petitions known to him. And he will grant our petitions. And I think he grants our petitions in ways sometimes that we, we don't recognize or maybe even want, but he does grant them. He is gracious and merciful. We cry out to him, don't we? We look for his intervention, for his help. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and 15, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage. Again, we, we didn't receive that spirit of being subject, but of a citizen, free. Again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We cry out. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children than heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And here's that concept again, kind of creeping up subtly, that we are heirs with Christ, and Christ is, well, what is his, <laughs> what are we going to inherit from him? All things. All things are given to him in heaven and in earth, and so we as citizens of the kingdom of God are many sovereigns to inherit as kings from Christ Jesus. All things in heaven and in earth. How many rights do we have as the children of God? It's pretty much unlimited, isn't it? How many rights do we have as a citizen of the eternal kingdom of God? In everything we have from him. I don't know if you've noticed, but in, in, in these three that I've, I've discussed today, ever-present is the spirit of God. Is that active agent working in us, enabling us. We have that spirit guiding and teaching us, strengthening us in the trial, in trials and testing. His spirit giving us wisdom. If I can just remember to pray for it when I need it. Right? 
it's there to be used as a tool when, when we need to make critical decisions. I lost my keys this morning. It wasn't really that critical, I suppose. But I did say a prayer because I needed to be here. Otherwise, I'd get in trouble. But how many times are we in critical conditions and we re react instead of just taking a breath, as Mark mentioned earlier, and asking for that guidance through God's Spirit to help us in our decisions, teaching us, strengthening us, strengthening us. Real power. There's real power in the Spirit of God, and we forget it. We forget that power that he has given us. Does our Constitution in this United States give us the kind of power that the Spirit of God can give us? The Spirit of God can change minds. It can divide asunder, can it? It can open people up, not for their detriment, but for their healing, for their restoration. The Spirit of God is an active agent. Are we active with it? Are we walking in the direction that it's trying to push us? It is an active agent. It should be in our lives. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. If you remember, one of the rights that every Roman citizen had was the right to carry those rights wherever they went. If they went to another city, they didn't have to become a, a, another citizen at some point, pay their money and buy a citizenship or whatever. They carried it with them. They were a citizen of Rome no matter where they went. And dare I say, if, if somebody found out a Roman citizen was injured, hurt, abused, there would be trouble. Citizens of Rome had the right to carry their rights with them wherever they go. So do we. We carry those rights wherever we go. We carry the rights of freedom. We carry the rights of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We carry every single right that God has granted to us. We carry those with us. Why do we sometimes act like we don't? Why do we act in fear? Why don't we have boldness all the time? And I'm talking to myself. Why don't we carry those rights with us? They are with us. They are privileges, spiritual power that God has given us. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Wherever we go, we take those rights and responsibilities with us. We take this power with us. And we are to live as citizens of the kingdom now. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? And it, and it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, that it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I imagine that a citizen of Rome was more often than not pretty well dressed. He had rights. He could own property. 
he could invest, he had legal protection under the law. He probably, on average, was a pretty wealthy individual, or she. And so they would stand out in the crowd. The citizenship that they had would be obvious to those around them. Is ours? Is our citizenship obvious to those around us? We are to be that light and that, that salt. But if in the course of our personal lives and our public lives, in the course of our conversation with friends and colleagues about politics, especially in this subject, if we're no different from all the rest, then are we being light and are we being salt? Instead of maybe arguing politics, which I am guilty, maybe I should be saying, well, you know, in the kingdom of God, it's going to be like this. Do you want to be a citizen of that country? We need to carry our citizenship wherever we go, and we need to stand out as citizens of God. Paul gives us an the, the supreme example of how we are to conduct ourselves in this world. We should copy him. He used his rights as a Roman citizen to gain those for Christ, as many as he could, to gain new citizens for the kingdom of God. He used those rights to get out of trouble so he could continue to preach. He used those rights to go to the heart of the largest empire in the world and preach Christ Jesus, possibly to Caesar himself. Would you be willing to go to Washington, D.C. and preach Christ Jesus to the President of the United States? Something we have to consider. We need to follow Paul's example. Let's make sure that we don't mix religion of politics with our true faith. We can engage in the political process, but if we're not careful, instead of rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, we may end up rendering what is God, what is God's to Caesar. That is not where we want to go. We have protesters running around with not my president written on their forehead. Did you see the pictures? And the Sharpie. Not my president. I find it interesting that it's on their forehead. I wonder if they wrote it on their hand, too. Instead of that, Paul tells us, maybe we should write, Jesus is the Son of God, and I am the citizen of his kingdom. 